If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And there's always been the sense that woodlands and forests are incredibly important resources in terms of, of how we live in the world, how we survive, how we make sense of our place in the world. And that goes all the way back. That was Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough talking about the mysterious history of forests. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. For today's episode, we've paid a visit to Sherwood Forest in Nottinghamshire. Famed, of course, for its associations with the Robin Hood legend, but also a great place to explore the history of forests more broadly. On location there for us were Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough, who recently presented a series on forests for BBC Radio 3, alongside our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman. So we've come to Sherwood Forest to have a chat about ancient woodlands and the kind of the, the importance and significance over history. We're on a path to Thinghow. Um, what is Thinghow and where is it and what was it? Oh, well, the clue's in the name, because, I mean, when you think Sherwood Forest, we think Robin Hood, we don't mm. think Vikings, right? But we're all about the Vikings on this path because Thinghow is actually a, a Norse place. The word thing is an assembly place. It's, um, you know, so it was used by the Norse settlers in this part of England um, as, a, as a sort of meeting point. So you need somewhere convenient where everyone can get to. And the how probably comes from an old Norse word, heiger, which means sort of mound. So I've never been here, actually. So this is an adventure for me as well. But what I'm expecting is, is at least a little bit of raised ground, you know, or as raised as you're going to get in this, this part of the country. Yeah. At least. So well, is this the oldest part of the forest then? Um, it's not. Well, forest is quite a tricky thing. So what, what this is part of, part of the reason we're, we're looking at this is because Radio 3 is doing a forest series mm. um, starting this summer, at, at midsummer uh, or around. And we really are escaping to the forest, both literally, as, as we're doing right now, and also metaphorically. So we're looking at how the forests are part of our 
Well, our, our identity as humans, um, uh, you know, how we use them culturally, how we use them just practically, uh, how, we, how we play with them, how we conjure with them. And also our national identity, our national story. When we think of forest, forest oh. is quite... Hello, bike. <laughs> um, forest is actually a word that really properly gets introduced into England, at least, when the Normans come. And so when we're talking about ancient forests, we've got to think, OK, well, what are we, what are we actually talking about? Mm. It's certainly true that Sherwood Forest has, uh, oh, I think it's something close to a thousand ancient oak trees. Really? I mean, yeah, it's, it is, it is a remarkable place I mean you just have to walk around if we know one we know the the great the major oak you know that one that almost looks like a spider or some sort of creature it's got all these branches and, and all these struts supporting it something like that maybe it's 800 years old maybe even a thousand years old um, when we think of ancient woodland we're really talking about woodland that's kind of pre-1600 something like that it's it's before they started planting properly so it's not necessarily the case at all that this is the oldest part um, okay. but yeah it's it, it's all pretty old around this part of the world and and the Sherwood Forest that we we know today is quite looks quite different doesn't it to how it would have so it would have been a lot bigger stretch encompass a lot more than it does now yeah in terms of the the, the territory that it encompassed yeah I mean it, it's it's very much shrunk as is the case for for lots of these ancient woodland and forest tracts but Forest doesn't just mean trees. So, I mean, where we are right now, we're walking down this lovely, sunny path and we've got trees of all sorts on either sides. I can see oak, beech, birch, all the rest of it. But forest was actually, it, it was more of a legal term. It was, it was a, part of, um, a part of the landscape that was under royal law. So it was used particularly by Norman kings and um, nobles for hunting. But if you're going to go hunting, you need more than just forests. In fact, forests in terms of woodland, as we, we think of it, they're not great for hunting. You think low branches, you're riding, <laughs> chasing a deer, you're just going to go dangerous. slap back. Yeah, pretty dangerous. So you need heathland, you need moorland, you need scrubland, you need trees. But also within forests, uh, traditionally speaking, you could also have villages, hamlets, all sorts of different landscapes incorporated within that. So forests were very much a part of people's daily lives then? Yeah. As opposed to places to go and visit, and like we do today, perhaps. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, we have to think what use would forest landscapes and woodlands have been? Say if you're a little, I don't know, Anglo-Saxon peasant going back to kind of pre-1066 Norman conquest. Well, it's going to be really useful for grazing your animals, for pannage, so somewhere where the pigs can root around and find food. Uh, the trees themselves are going to be important for fuel, for making charcoal, uh, for agriculture. You'd have, you'd have, um, you know, not necessarily permanent. We're not talking field systems, but places where you could grow crops. So these places are really important, and that continues. So these sorts of environments are, are fantastic for resources. But what we start to see you know, as is often the case later on when we get into, like, the Romantic period, is the idea of forests as something to be looked at and admired rather than something to be worked in and used. Although, I mean, if we're talking about leisure activities, that's also true of, say, you know, hunting. When, when you're, that's, you're not doing that because you need the venison, you're doing that because it makes you look like a, a 
big man and you get a nice bit of venison at the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's quite hard to get into that mindset, isn't it? That in a forest then where, you know, part of, you needed them to survive. Yes. And yeah. when, you know, were there laws around, you know, who could be in the forest, what they could do in the forest? Were there laws around that? Well, this is, I mean, forest law is what comes in really with the Normans, although, and it is a sort of French thing. I think the first reference we get to legal forest areas that are set aside for royal hunting is under Charlemagne. So we're talking 800 around that time. Um, so there are certainly laws that protect the areas. The issue is that the Normans get really greedy, particularly under William the Conqueror's son, William Rufus. I mean, he, ironically or appropriately enough, he's, he's then killed while out hunting. Possibly an accident, possibly something dodgy goes on, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, by the time we're up to around 1200 or so, I think it's something like in southern England, a third of the land has been legally parceled off for, as, as, you know, as, as royal forests. So what you get there is, is I mean, we're, we're coming up to the time of King John, Magna Carta, uh, but along with the Magna Carta, in fact, I think slightly predating the Magna Carta, we get the Charter of the Forest, which is basically bringing in that legal area that's under royal control and used for royal hunting and almost giving the rights back to the people so the people can use that land again as uh, as historically they did and I mean it's just been the 800th anniversary so the, the kind of the big uh, charter comes out in 1217 and so there's been all sorts of celebrations but it's almost like rights of a common man sort of celebrations about this idea that the forest is something for everyone or at least the, this woodland area with its different landscapes and different topographies are there to be used. And but before then, when when they were under more under royal control, what how, how was that managed? What what happened to people who kind of you know breached those boundaries? Well, it's fun. I've just been, so because we're making this um, this uh, uh, Sunday feature for Radio Three. We're, well, we're making a series of them. We're doing this the summer one as part of this forest season and then we'll be doing autumn and winter. We've just been talking to um, the geographer, Charles Watkins, who's at Nottingham. And he's, yeah, he was taking around all the big woods and talking about exactly that, what happens to, to people um, who break the laws. I was thinking, you know, man traps and, you know, people yeah, waiting around. Got, you know, armed guards well, type exactly, thing. You know? Exactly, but I mean, as, as he pointed out, actually, it's really difficult to, to um, patrol woodlands. So yeah. you did have officials and there were courts for people who particularly, say, poached the king's deer, that sort of thing. Um, I think somewhere, I, I, you know, it was mostly fines. I, I, somewhere I read that, that, that I think the worst that could happen was your dog would, dog would have its toes chopped off but I, Charles wasn't sure about that one so, so I'm not but, <laughs> yeah a little bit poor dog right <laughs> um and obviously Sherwood is, is is probably best known for its associations with Robin Hood um that kind of whole outlaw you know people hiding out in the forest is that is that kind of go back further than the Robin Hood it, yeah it definitely does and I think it's part of this idea of the forest as being somehow beyond the normal law, you know, because it's in royal control, but also being that sort of outside over there. So that word forest, it's it's a like old French word, mm. but it, it's related probably to the Latin word forest, meaning outside. It, 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 it's similar etymology to the word foreigner. 
So that sense of being, yeah, outside, over there, beyond where people normally live, I think is part of the reason it becomes associated with that. Um, I mean, in Old Norse, so we're on our way to, to Thinghow, this Norse assembly site. But uh, in, in Old Norse legal texts and also the Old Norse sagas, which are, you know, so medieval tales that are written down in around the 13th century in Iceland, we have stories of outlaws. And they're either called vargar, which means wolves, or they're called skogmather, it means forest man. And that's the word for an outlaw. And it's, it's funny because we know that these laws must have come from mainland Scandinavia, probably, because in Iceland, you don't really have any trees. The first settlers um, cut them all down. So Iceland gets completely deforested, and yet it's still something that's preserved in the way people think about outlaws. And it's also there in, in Old English. So, you know, in, in Anglo-Saxon poems, there's one called Maxims too, And it's saying... It says something like, the, the boar must be in the scrubland and the lone wolf in the forest. And so it's the idea of that outside over there, which is then appropriate that we have the assembly side, that ultimate uh, symbol of, 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 of legal authority in the Norse world in the middle of Sherwood Forest. Yeah, which I have to say, I didn't even know existed. <laughs> no, well, it's, it's only very recently been discovered. It was discovered by local historians and archaeologists, there have been some excavations, but this is a pretty new thing. I mean, it's, it's something I only found out about recently, so it's, it's kind of exciting for yeah. me too, yeah. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Moving on to kind of the more mythical um, legend side of, of forests, when do we start seeing that kind of romantic view of, of woodlands? Well, I suppose it depends what we mean. I mean, even in, in, well, in medieval literature, we do get some sense of, of the forest, of romance, as it were. Mm. But th those sorts of, the idea of, of the picturesque, 
landscape we're really seeing in the 18th, 19th century coming in. And that seems to be when that association with Robin Hood also really picks up. So again, when I was speaking to Charles Watkins, what he pointed out was that it was really with Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe that we start to see that romantic connection between Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest because um, Scott sets a scene where Robin Hood meets, uh, I think, King Richard under a great oak tree in Sherwood Forest. And that's when all the tourists suddenly start coming and it all gets, you know, place people want to just come and hang out and go, ooh, and gosh, a lot. But then if we go backwards, think of that ultimate imaginative forest of the English imagination, at least, Shakespeare's Forest of Arden. And that's a very interesting one as well. We've been talking about outlaws and, and exiles. And that's, at least in part, its function in As You Like It. So Duke Senior gets gets out, well, at least exiled from court, or exiles himself from court with his men. And actually there's a line that says he's out there living at large in, in like, like Robin Hood and his merry men in Sherwood Forest. So there is that sort of association. And for Duke Senior, it's, it's almost an Eden. It's this sort of paradise away from the troubles of court. So it might be windy, it might be cold, but at least they're free. And in Shakespeare, we do get this idea of the, the forest, the woodland, as a place where magic happens. You think Midsummer Night's Dream, you think lovers running off into the forest, we think strange happenings. And I think there it's this idea very much, again, of something removed from normal life, everyday, boring, quotidian existence, something where fairies, magic, lovers, exiles can exist, which I think is just a very natural impulse. We set the things that we don't really understand. We set our imaginative world in those spaces beyond. And I think a forest or woodland is a, a great place for that. And, and did that change that kind of idea? Did that change the usage of, of forests as well? Well, certainly in the 19th century, you do start to see... Um, tourists, for example, coming to Sherwood Forest. Yeah. That's, and this idea that they're here to admire rather than to use. And again, I mean, although what, what we also start to see in, in that sort of period is with the Industrial Revolution, woodlands being eaten up. You know, they've been used for timber, particularly in the Tudor period. Uh, so, you know, for, for the kind of increased naval fleets and also just increasing population. But what we start to see in the Industrial Revolution is, again, forests as a resource, but also a place where you can basically get rid of them if you need, if you need more industry. Um, so, well, the Forest of Arden, which I mentioned in connection to Shakespeare, is an interesting example because it doesn't seem to have been under forest law. It wasn't, it wasn't a royal forest in that sense. It was just dotted woodland, and yet, it again gets chewed up for timber, um, it gets chewed up for fuel, and it gets chewed up to make Birmingham. Uh, interestingly, I think that's what Tolkien is playing on. You know, he has this lovely, idyllic idea of the Shire, yeah. and then he has Mordor, this awful place of, of fire and, well, industry to some extent. And I think it's been suggested that he was drawing on that. Um, his, his influence for that came from... South Birmingham, this very industrial, um, very treeless place. 
And so when we get the harrowing of the Shire at the end, it's, it's you know, again, it's this imagination of a place that is no longer wooded, no longer bucolic and no longer peaceful. So I think that in different ways, our, our kind of, particularly in the modern era, our, our use of these landscapes, these wooded landscapes are very much influenced by how they are used by poets and writers and musicians and the like. Um, and sort of going right back to the very beginning of, of, sort of the forest, you know, when do you first start seeing them come, you know, emerging? So my, well, obviously I'm not a scientist, but we have been talking to archaeologists and scientists about this for the programme. And my sense is that the forests, as we think of them, you know, in terms of these, these great wooded areas, really start to come into existence around 400 million years ago. But what's amazing is that these aren't, I mean, we're, right now we're walking through this lovely English bucolic summer forest landscape, but what you don't think of is forests in, say, Svalbard or forests in Antarctica. <laughs> and, and yet there were. Um, so there was, I think it's around 100 million years ago, something like that. Uh, there, there is fossil evidence that suggests that there were quite substantial forests in Antarctica. And in fact, when Scott was coming back from his ill-fated expedition to the South Pole in 1912, he discovered some of these, these fossils. And I, I'm not sure he knew what they were at that point, but certainly this idea of this forested landscape in that particular part of the world, um, in an era where there is no ice. And yet, what I rather love about that is there's still the extremes of dark and light. And so they've actually evolved. You know, these, these, they were kind of dwarf, very closely packed together uh, forest landscapes, which were designed in order to take advantage of those particular conditions in, right at the southern tip of the world. And fast forwarding a bit to, to well, basically the birth of, of humans and early man. We've been talking to an archeologist, Eleanor Sherry in uh, Oxford, who has been looking at the possibility that early man in Africa actually could have, well, at least in part, come from forests or gone back to the forest. There's, there's all sorts of really interesting evidence of uh, stone tools, for example, that aren't these delicate, narrow ones that you might expect to see, for example, to, to skin meat, but these quite hefty axes that would have been used to chop wood. And so with her, we've been exploring the idea that almost, you know, we humans are, I don't know, I don't want to say designed for trees, designed for forests, but there is an aspect of that. I mean, you put a little kid on, a, on, on monkey bars and they just hang there, you know, it's, it's, it's quite an obvious place to be. And then just if we, again, fast forward, uh, say to Ertzi, remember that, uh, the, the, the body that was found up in the, the Alps, I think, about 5,000 years ago, something like that. And he'd bled to death, he'd been attacked. What's interesting there is that so much of how he was dressed and what he was carrying had come from trees, had come from the forest, so what he was wearing and, and the tools he was carrying. And there's always been the sense that woodlands and forests are incredibly important resources in terms of, of how we live in the world, how we survive, how we make sense of our place in the world. And that goes all the way back. I mean, forests today, they're sort of seen as peaceful, 
kind of tranquil places. I mean, just today the wind's kind of blowing through the trees and it's, it's a lovely day. But they also have a sort of darker history and sort of fairy tales and myths, don't they? They really do. Um, I can think of... A, yeah, it, it does make sense, doesn't it? I mean, something like this. So we've got to a bit of this lovely country path that on our left there's a, a golden field full of, full of rape and then we've got quite, I don't want to say sparse tree coverage to our right, but certainly there wouldn't be an awful lot lurking there. But when we think of... When I say the word forest... What we think of is that sort of dense, dark woodland where things really could be lurking mm. behind uh, every tree and every bush. And in fact, funnily enough, just this morning, I was being shown around the part of Sherwood Forest by a witch um, called Moira, a professional witch who was absolutely amazing. She, she was doing spells with me uh, out in a little forest glade. But this is something she was talking about. She was saying you can see when, you, when you're late at night in the forest and the branches of the, of the trees are moving, your imagination can start to play tricks on you. Mm. And of course, you know, I mean, there could be anything lurking out there, like human or non-human. So I think that in part, that makes some very good settings for fairy tales and myths. I'm thinking of one just because we we're on the way to a, a Norse site that springs to mind, and that's the forest of Merkvither or Merkwood. Tolkien uses it. Just, mm. But Merkvither is interesting because in one Old Norse text, it's, it's this kind of ancient Germanic, northern Germanic woodland. It's on the boundary between the territories of the Goths and the Huns. But in another mythological text, it's the ancient forest through which the sons of Muspel, and Muspel is like the land of fire, it's the forest through which the sons of Muspel ride to Ragnarok, which is you know, the apocalyptic end of days battle in Norse mythology. But it's also though, I mean, we think closer to home, something like Grimm's fairy tales, how many of them are set in woods, or uh, even, even, even like Irish myths and... and but even if we think of those great German forests, um, that's where so many of the fairy tales that were collected by the Grimm brothers and then have come into our uh, broader collective culture are set. So there's you know, Hansel and Gretel or Red Riding Hood, all of which have something nasty lurking in the woods, whether that's a big bad wolf or a witch in her cottage. Wait, so we're finally approaching Thing How. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, about it. Why, why is this a special place? Well, you can see just from the way that the landscape all matches up, we're getting to a much higher point in terms of, well, Nottinghamshire than the rest of the area. And that's significant because of that, that second element, that how, Heiger. It, it can mean a burial mound. It can also just mean a, a mound, a place that's quite prominent in the landscape because mm. it's a bit higher. And that would be a very appropriate place for a meeting point. And we can also see that in the place names around. So the area that we think of as Sherwood Forest that we visit is actually called Birklands. And that gives us a sense of the Norse in a forested woodland landscape because mm -hmm. the Birk element is the Norse word for birch. And then that lands was actually Lund or Lunder, which means um, like a grove. So it's a, it's a birch grove. And then if you if you go around this area, you'll also see lots of place names with a B-Y at the end. So mm. uh, I think there's um, Thorsby and then there's... Um, but B are so quite close to here. And those are farms. So that B word, Bu, is still a town in, in Norwegian. Um, so it'll be 
maybe the place, uh, the, the farm of someone called Thorir or the farm of someone called Budur, that sort of thing. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, so there's a real sense of people living in this landscape. And I think we can say that about forests throughout time, that it, it's not this sort of otherworldly. These are human, well, if not human landscapes, at least landscapes that humans live in or near or around. And mm. so you, you get you get a lot of the sense of that. And we just, I mean, looking out, it's, it's an absolutely glorious day, isn't mm. it? It's, it's very lucky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you just imagine you're, you're a Norse settler coming from Denmark, Norway. Yeah, you'd be happy to be settling in a place like this and also forming your own sense of a legal society. This is part of the area that was known as the Dane law or became known as the Dane law. It's, it's the, the part of the country where the Norse settled in the um, late part of the ninth century in particular. And they're still here all around us in our place names, in our yeah. in our heritage, very much so. And this is where they kind of, these, sort of, it was like a parliament then, was it? A meeting yeah. of the sort of people yeah. in charge? Or? Yeah, exactly. Or just, just, just everyone, anyone, mm. not necessarily just the people in charge. Um, societies tend to be more egalitarian than we might think. So it's mm. not like a collection of nobles or something. It is, it is, you know, maybe the farmers, the locals, everyone coming together. And it's where, you know, law cases would be held, marriages would be arranged, deals brokered in terms of land, just everything you can think of. And so it would make sense that it would be in a fairly topographically speaking a prominent place yeah. like this in the landscape and yet also all around us in those place names um, we get a sense of yeah the Norse living here farming here making use of the woodland making use of of just these these really special natural resources mm. in a very farmable part of of the world and it's, it's interesting that we're we're in Sherwood Forest and we're still in that area, even though it feels quite open where we mm. are right now. Um, partly because of just how many, we, we mentioned earlier these extraordinary number of ancient oaks that are here, often very distinctive. They, they almost have their own personalities. You know, some of them are, are squat and they have all these these branches coming off them, almost like, like, like I don't know, tentacles or mm. something. And then others are very, very tall. Many of them are hollow. You can, you can fit inside them. You can fit a party inside <laughs> them. And that sense of, of, of specific trees being distinctive. And, and sometimes we see that in trees that people have attached stories to, particularly if they are unusual looking. So the major oak, you know, the, the, yes. that enormous one, yeah, in, in Sherwood Forest um, is a really good example of that. But we also get the sense of, of trees themselves sometimes is not, we must think of them as, I don't know, passive back backdrops to our lives but you know they've got their own very busy community community really, yeah, yeah <laughs> ex exactly I mean I've I've, I've been um uh, reading recently about how trees are so connected there's almost like a mother tree and the mother tree will send out nutrients and other trees have kind of nitrogen fixing nodules to help the other trees in this in this network um almost under the ground as it as it were so so we don't see it in the way that we imagine the world but there's this yeah this secret world of trees going on beneath our feet this sense of connections this sense of um almost i i, I don't want to sound like take it too far but but this this sense of, of a social hierarchy amongst trees so you know it's all very well this idea of having a tree and cutting one down and planting another and and so making a sort of sustainable woodland environment but if you cut down a mother tree that's actually sending a lot of nutrients out these these yeah. ancient trees then there's all sorts of repercussions. And, and in these ancient trees as well, we have, even if they're dead, they're still, 
they're still producing life, you know, if not from the offshoots themselves, then from the, the, the wildlife. Yeah. The, yeah, exactly. The shell, the sort of insects, the bird life, um, the animal life that are all living in them. And it's, it's a very complex, very beautiful, very mysterious in lots of ways um, system. I, I get the sense that there's still an awful lot we don't know still mm. and, and that's hidden. And that's part of what we're trying to do in this series as well um, yeah. uh, on Radio 3 is, is really try and find out what what's still out there, what's on the edge, you know, either like scientifically, biologically, but also imaginatively or in terms of, I don't know, even... Who knows, we might find find strange humans we never expected <laughs> to find living in the forest. That was Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough in conversation with Charlotte Hodgman at Sherwood Forest. Eleanor's recent BBC Radio 3 series, entitled Forests, is out now on BBC Radio iPlayer. As is another documentary she produced for the network, entitled The Summer Forest. And you can read an article by Charlotte and Eleanor in our July issue, which is on sale now with Viking Warriors on the front cover. Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are now on sale for our History Weekend events, taking place this October in Winchester and York. Among the speakers are Dan Jones, Michael Wood, Lucy Worsley and Susanna Lipscomb, who I'm pleased to say has now been added to our York event. For more details and tickets please visit historyweekend.com. Well, that's about it for today's episode, but we'll be back on Monday to talk about the history of Ireland. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.